Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew. Before I get started, I wanted to say hi to whoever wrote the message on episode 122 on Spotify. Um, I read all of those, guys. Every time you leave me a message or a review, I'm like all over it and it makes my day. Um, so they said, excellent, very interesting. All your episodes are very entertaining and interesting. Been a fan for a long time. Much love from Western Kentucky, Clay, Webster County specifically. So thank you for saying something. Um, Western Kentucky is a part of the state I have kind of neglected to visit for no particular reason. Um, I've been south so many times because um, like all my ancestors were from straight southern Kentucky down from Louisville. Um, and I've been to eastern Kentucky a couple times. I really want to spend more time on both sides of the state. So if anybody's got, you know, a travel itinerary for me, um, some suggestions on historic places to stop either in eastern or the western part of the state, send them my way, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com or on social media. Uh, but yeah, whoever you are, I don't think you left a name. It was just like a sequence of numbers, uh, but thank you. And if anybody ever wants to say hi uh, on Spotify, that's an easy way to do it. So, last time I mentioned that I had found three stories in the newspapers in August of 1923, 100 years ago, and I was excited to retell them, and turns out I'm going to tell you two of them today. And these will be relatively short, but the third story, oh my god, I ended up spending like five hours just researching the case, not even typing up the transcript, just researching the story and all the people involved. I can confidently say right now, it's probably going to be my favorite story I've ever told. Um, every time I thought I was done, I was just like, oh my God, it keeps going. So um, it'll be good, but it's a long one and it's not ready yet. So I'm going to give you these first two today to kind of hold you over until the third one is done. And these are two stories about family drama in Kentucky in the 1920s. First, I'll introduce you to a blended family living in Okalona off Smyrna Road, kind of on the outskirts of Louisville. We have George Mahan, the patriarch of the family, married to Mrs. Margaret Mahan. George and Margaret got married in 1908, when Margaret would have been 17 years old. I don't have an exact age for George, but I can assume he was quite a bit older than Margaret when they got married because he had a daughter from a previous relationship who was only between five and seven years younger than George's wife. George's daughter's name was Lucille, and it's my understanding that in 1923 they were all living on the same property. So we have George, his 32-year-old wife Margaret, and Margaret's stepdaughter Lucille, who was either 25 or 27 in 1923. They're all living together, even though there's a record in the newspaper from June of 1922 that shows Margaret had attempted to file for divorce and to receive alimony, but it doesn't look like that happened. So, they're all living together when on Saturday, July 28th, 1923, George's wife, Margaret, is shot by his daughter, Lucille. Officer Pullman was called to the Mahan home after neighbors heard a gunshot. 
When he arrived at the residence, he found Mrs. Mahan there with a bullet in her knee. She was taken to Norton Memorial Infirmary and Lucille was promptly arrested. Mrs. Mahan told the officer her version of events, which was that, quote, the stepdaughter shot her during a scuffle after driving her away from the house. So this sounds like Mrs. Mahan was possibly trying to get Lucille to leave, maybe. And then Lucille said that her stepmother was the one that started it. Margaret was the one who threatened to shoot Lucille, and the shot happened during an attempt to take the gun away from Margaret. Okay, so we have these two stories of what happened. As far as I know, George was not home at the time to corroborate either of them. So it's just the word of each woman. So they go to court a few days later, and the case gets continued until August 9th. But until then, Lucille's uncle, ironically named R.L. Bond, pays her $200 bond. So she gets to wait for her day in court from home, or at least not in jail. So after, sorry, during that first hearing, she tells the court that, again, she was just trying to get that automatic pistol away from her threatening stepmother. But the interesting thing at this point is that Margaret makes a second statement while she is in the infirmary, and this time she says, quote, her stepdaughter shot her after chasing her through a field and firing four shots at her. So Margaret's first version said that they were in a car, but the second time she says she was being chased through a field. Also, the neighbors heard the single gunshot, okay, not four. So fast forward almost a month to August 22nd, and there's an article in the paper that Mrs. George Mahan wants a divorce, she wants a restraining order, and money. So she's filed for divorce once again, and this time she alleges cruelty by her husband. She wants a restraining order against him, and she wants an order put on him that makes it so that he can't dispose of his personal property while this suit is ongoing. George was thought to have had property worth about $50,000, which is a lot of 50, which is a lot of money back then. And she was obviously concerned that while the divorce suit was ongoing, he was going to sell that, hide the profits, and not share it with her in the divorce. She also requested that she be allowed to go back to her maiden name, so she would be Margaret Hudson, and she wanted the poultry, valued at $300, and preserves valued at $50. Keep in mind, $300 in 1923 would be like over 5,000 today. So, um, you know, she's asking for a lot. We don't know what's been going on behind the scenes. Uh, her stepdaughter just shot her. They've been married. This is the interesting thing. They've been married since 1908. So this is all happening after 15 years of marriage. So in September, a grand jury officially indicts Lucille Mahan on the charge of malicious shooting with intent to kill. A day later, she posts bail again. This time, it's not paid by her uncle. It's paid by her dad, George. So at this point, I think George has taken his side. And her trial date is set for October 1st. That court date rolls around, but Lucille's trial is continued to early December based on Margaret having an illness. And I'm not sure if it was something related to her injury or if she was just sick, but it is because of Margaret that the trial gets delayed. 
And so everything is quiet until December. And then Lucille's trial starts on the 3rd. I don't have, I couldn't find any information about the actual trial, about which witnesses testified or what they brought into evidence, but I'm guessing for the most part, they just probably listened to Lucille's version of the story and Margaret's version of the story. And so two days later, they get a hung jury and a mistrial is declared. So nine of the jurors voted for an outright acquittal and three of them voted for a $50 fine. So Margaret's side of the story must not have been very convincing. I tried to find information about what happened to Lucille after that, and I just couldn't find anything. Um, but as far as I know, she's never retried for that crime. So she gets off, and then obviously that's not the outcome Margaret was looking for, but at least they can all move on, and move on they do. In July of 1924, Margaret is granted her divorce. She reverts back to her maiden name, so she becomes Margaret Hudson again. And the marriage is annulled on grounds of cruelty. She is to receive $3,500 lump alimony plus $350 to pay her attorney fees. So she, I mean, she won big time in this divorce. Um, unfortunately, the names, uh, the name Hudson and Mahant are both fairly common, so trying to figure out what became of them was tricky. Um, there was one report in 1931 that a Margaret Hudson was fined for drunk driving in J-Town, but I, I cannot confirm that that was her. Um, but that's kind of the last Margaret Hudson article that I could even possibly tie to this story. So they got their divorce, Lucille didn't go to jail for shooting her stepmother, Happy ending? I don't know. You decide. Uh, but that is the story of the Mayhan shooting in Louisville in The next one I have for today also took place in Louisville, but I want you to know the next episode I have, that story I'm really excited about, does take place in Paducah. So there you go, Western Kentucky. Um, okay, so for today, though, we have a family of four. We have Elijah B. Crawley, the dad, Josie, the mom, and two young children, Eileen and Melvin. Elijah, the dad, he was handsome. There's a picture of him in the paper. I'm going to put it on social media. He was a good-looking fella. And he had a much older brother. So at the time of our story, August of 23, Elijah was 28, and his older brother Thomas was 43. And Thomas had been living with the family since around last Christmas. Um, I think he had fallen on hard times, and he needed some help. He needed a place to stay. So he was staying with Elijah and Elijah's family, but he had become a nuisance and he was a drunk. He was, he was drinking a lot and he was becoming a problem and it got so bad. You know, they have two young children. They had to kick him out of the house. And I think that's when Thomas started threatening Elijah's wife, Josie. 
In mid-August, one afternoon, Josie took the two children to the Crawley's sister's house to play, and Thomas followed them there. And while the women and children were sitting in a bedroom with the shades down, Thomas fired a shot through the bedroom window, and it hit an organ on the other side of the room. Luckily, the women and children in the room were not injured. But just a few days after that, that one incident, Thomas went back to Elijah and Josie's house, saying he was going to kill them both. And according to Josie, he hit her several times. Her face was bruised and he broke two fingers on her right hand. So this, this is not a good dude. This is not a good situation. So Thomas took off. Okay. He ran from the scene and Josie called the police and a patrolman was sent over to the Crawley house. And he waited, thought, you know, maybe, maybe this guy will show back up. And sure enough, Thomas showed back up a few hours later. And instead of playing it cool, he threatened the officer with a knife and, quote, bragged that it would take four men to take him down. Uh, it didn't. It only took one. He was arrested and thrown in jail. But get this, a couple days later, Elijah bailed him out saying he was willing to give his violent, alcoholic brother another chance. And that move did not end up being a good thing for either Crawley brother. On Tuesday, August 28th, Thomas went back again to the Crawley house on Gallagher Street to harass Elijah and his wife. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. From inside the house, Elijah shot his brother, who was standing outside, in the chest, and when his brother collapsed, a bottle full of moonshine fell from his pocket and shattered on the ground outside. Elijah said, quote, It was that devil, that hellish moonshine in him, that I shot at. Elijah immediately turned himself in to the police and he was put in jail. He was arraigned the very next day on the 29th. The presiding judge was Eugene M. Daly. Elijah's attorney was R.C. Oldham, which I think was a very good thing. He was a top-notch litigator. He, Oldham represented a lot of high-profile cases uh, around this time period in Kentucky. So Elijah was in good hands. Oldham asked for bail, and the judge says, I'm not ready to uh, give the option for bail. I need more time to figure out exactly what happened here, because right now it just looks like this man, you know, shot a guy from, he was inside and the guy was outside and that doesn't look great, right? So they do continue the case for a little while. Meanwhile, the coroner, Roy L. Carter, performs his inquest on August 31st. Um, and then Thomas Crawley is buried in St. Stephen's Cemetery. And I actually didn't know where St. Stephen's was, so I had to look it up. And I did find a little paragraph about it on Find a Grave. So basically back in the mid-1800s, Portland Cemetery was the go-to for a lot of Louisvillians in this area. But they started charging this $6 burial fee on top of other expenses, and some people did not like that. So a group of German Catholics got together and they opened their own burial ground at 1808 South Preston Street. This is a cemetery that has apparently been very poorly managed in more recent years and maybe always 
Um, the caretaker was actually fired in 2017 because it was in such disarray. And they also weren't good record keepers. It turns out that the books from 1851 to 1897, which are, I mean, those years, those are of great historical importance, they're completely gone. They don't exist. I don't know if they ever did. Um, so that's kind of a bummer because a lot of people, a lot of Louisvillians did end up going to or, or getting buried in that cemetery instead of Portland or any of the others. But anyway, uh, back to the Crawleys. Thomas is buried at St. Stephen's, and around the same time, Elijah does post bond, which it was a $5,000 bond, which is like a billion dollars back then. So they must, the family must have been doing okay. Um, now, based on the circumstances and all the witnesses, you know, after they've gathered more information, they had people had seen Thomas's behavior leading up to the incident. In November of 1923, a grand jury declines to indict Elijah Crawley. What I love about telling these two stories together is that there is a stark contrast in the way that they're reported in the media, even though the two situations are fairly similar. We have two shootings between family members. Now, of course, one of them dies and one of them doesn't, but still fairly similar situations. However, the Mayhans are barely in the paper at all. The Crawleys are on the front page and their, you know, their, their photos in the paper and stuff. So there's an obvious difference in the coverage. And it's because social status was so important in this time period. I mean, in like in the 20s, especially, it seems like um, if you were of high social status and you lived in a central location, which in the 20s, where the Crawleys lived was a very central location, you were in the paper all the time. I mean, if you left town for the weekend, the papers reported it. Um, you know, they probably dressed better, um, things like that. But the Mayhans, you know, they were farmers. They, I don't think they were poor. You know, it sounds like George had a lot of land, but they didn't dress fancy. You know, they probably didn't go to a lot of tea luncheons and things, and they lived in a more rural area. They just weren't of that high social status. And so we just don't have as much information about them. So in this case, I did find plenty of follow-up about the Crawley family after Thomas was killed. Um, and it's not all good news, but I, but I do have it. So in August of 1926, so three years after Thomas is killed, there appears a notice of divorce proceedings between Elijah and Josie. But I don't think it ever happens. They don't get divorced. And then in 1936... So a decade later, there's a notice in the paper and it says on and after this date, August 21, 1936, I will not be responsible for debts contracted by my wife, Josie I. Crawley, 3033 Hale Avenue. And under that, it's signed by Elisha and it has his address listed as the same address. So it's funny. They're still married at this time. They're still living together. 
but it sounds like they definitely were having their rough patches. And, you know, maybe Mrs. Crawley had a little shopping problem. We've all been there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they make it for the long haul. Unfortunately, Josie passed away on February 12th, 1947. She was only 47 years old. Uh, but they were still married and living together at 1136 West Oak Street. But that's not it. The saga continues when a marriage application appears in the paper in June of 1957. Elijah Crawley, 62, is going to marry Hetty English, 66 years old, so a slightly older woman. However, there's another notice in the paper Less than a year later, January 1958, Hetty has filed for divorce. So that's kind of a bummer. And then Elijah passed away in August of 1964, almost two decades after Josie. He was 70 years old, which is a pretty good age for back then. He had been a Louisville native, lived in Louisville all his life. He worked for the Illinois Central Railroad for 39 years. He was also, I found out in his obit, a World War I veteran. So that's kind of interesting because it makes you wonder, um, you know, the shooting is in 1923. So I wonder um, if he had just served before that or if he left after. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Anyway, uh, he had three sons, one daughter, 17 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren at the time of his death. So Elijah lived, you know, it sounds like a pretty good long life with a big family. So I think the Crawley home is still standing. It sits in between the California and Park Hill neighborhoods. Don't go searching it out because somebody probably lives there. But I always like to be able to tie back in, you know, if something is still standing that was involved in something like this in the past. Um, but that, that is it. That's the family sagas of the Mayhans and the Crawleys. And I will be back very soon with this truly unbelievable tale. I'm, I'm just so excited to put it together for you all. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. Uh, write me on Spotify if that's how you listen. And until next time. Mm -hmm.